Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sleep where? Sleep anywhere, that's what I say, whenever you can. This far into lockdown, my main daily motivation when I wake up is knowing that it's only 15 hours or so before I get to go back to bed again. And when so many of us are currently spending so much time in our PJs, or if you're an important key worker, needing some comfy ones for the scarce moments you get to wear them, British Boxers are the properly ethically sound independent shop for undies and nightwear that you'll probably also wear in the day for quite some months yet. They have everything from hipster briefs, which I assume have their own beards and cutoffs, uh, to pyjama separates in case um, your pyjamas don't get on well enough to hang out together. OK, look, I'm clearly not an expert, but having got some of their nightwear, I promise it's well comfy. And if you make an order at British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10, then you'll get 10% off anything you buy. Hey, you might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and I would say, yes, yes I am. And it's very, very snug in here. Join me. Join me. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the comedy politics podcast that keeps spending to get the country moving. By that, I mean it's run at a loss to ensure listeners go out of their way to avoid it. I'm Tin and do yeah, but yes, it's budget week, meaning that the Prime Minister and protected wildlife site for whatever it is that lives in old hay that smells like bullshit, Boris Johnson, says he has no doubt that there will be a strong jobs recovery. So I think that means most of us are going to be employed on minimum wage to break rocks and lift things. Who doesn't love the budget, eh? You know, that magical time of year where we all find out just what financial treats the Chancellor and Jar Jar Binks Pez dispenser, Rishi Sunak, will be flinging our way this time. With Sunak's ripe imagination, you know, based on whatever takeaway menu was last pushed through his letterbox, will it be an eat-out-to-help-out sequel called Dine because we've got no real clue how to stop the country's massive decline? Or perhaps Feed so I don't have to tax Tory donors for their greed? Or will it be a brand new plan to help people own a home in exchange for a lifetime of debt to provide financial anxiety that will adequately replace any you just may have managed to get over? Well, what we do know is that Sunak faces a big challenge this year. And no, it's not just that he's never had to worry about money his whole life, and now he has to quickly find out what it is and how it works. 
No, it's because the country has suffered a shock. And Sunak says he wants to be honest with the public about coronavirus's effect on the economy. So I guess that'll mean a lengthy speech about how actually 10 years of austerity and rising inequality under successive Conservative governments, along with a haphazard lack of Brexit plan, handing contracts to friends and policies that would suggest they've been lobbied by COVID, is why we're now really watching our wealth die off like one of the 130,000 unnecessary virus victims. And chances are high that when it does keel over, infection rates will mean only six people will be able to attend its funeral. But of course, it's much easier to say it's COVID what did it, as that's only fair when it's the virus's fault that immigrants can't come over to take the blame instead. If Sunak wanted to be really honest, he'd say, you know what, we can make money wherever we like. And that half of the national debt is actually money deposited by banks into the Bank of England and the government can change interest rates on it how it likes. But then you might all find out how it works and be angry that when it really, really comes down to it, most money doesn't even actually physically exist, which is why there's always money for spending like nearly three million pounds on a TV studio for press conferences that's ever been used. But there's never any money for things like kids being able to eat. I suppose how can fed kids hypothetically host a press conference that won't be happening so you know what a waste and all it really requires is changing a few minus signs to a few plus signs on a handful of spreadsheets and we can all have a much nicer time with our entirely fabricated system that was invented by gold grabbing monks Sadly, though, I don't think old Rishi is going to say any of that. And instead, it looks a lot more like there's going to be a raising of council tax, cuts to the universal credit £20 boost and public sector pay freezes. And hey, I guess that's fair, right? I mean, it's totally the worst off that caused the coronavirus by making it in their secret labs that they store in their spare bedrooms. And it was definitely them who didn't close the borders in time. So frankly, it just feels fair that they all take the hit instead of all the completely different lowest earning workers who the government is supporting and did all the jobs keeping the country running during the pandemic. Oh, oh, wait. Oh, wait. There have been concerns from six big Conservative donors who warned Sunak not to raise corporation taxes as that could plunge the country into a recession, which would be, if anything, a step up from the depression most of us have felt for the past decade. Now is not the time for tax rises, they've said, possibly because travel restrictions mean that they can't exile somewhere else in time to avoid them. And that might mean that some of their barely earned money that they wouldn't even notice was missing might get used for a hospital or school, and then they'd have less poverty to point and cackle at when driven around in their Bentley by an underpaid chauffeur. But raising corporation tax does actually look like it might be on Sunak's cards for Wednesday, meaning that it could end up being a fraction up from the massive cut the Conservatives made to it years and years ago. Because, hey, what is their entire endless political strategy other than a large-scale version of smashing a vase, then supergluing two of the pieces back on and telling you it's as good as new, while, you know, the only flowers it can now hold are some buttercups and chances are high you'll slash your arms on it trying to water them. Former Chancellor and used on the side of buildings to ward away spirits, Philip Hammond, has said the government must risk unpopularity, which is a bit like warning James May that he might have to risk being seen as uncool to anyone who still has a pulse. You must tell some difficult home truths, said Philip Hammond, who was, of course, the man who said poverty didn't exist because he hadn't seen it. So it's not as if he can be critical of anyone closing their eyes and hoping that means issues don't exist. And of course, eager to be a viable opposition, the Labour Party are opposing a rise in corporation taxes too, because, you know, their colour is red for the blood of the workers that were brutally squished by the giant corporations who trample over human rights like it's a race. It's a smart move for the party, though, as this could mean they get some big billionaire donors, and that way it won't matter when they don't win elections as they'll still have at least three kitchens each and a job lined up for them in selling large weapons to governments who seem like large weapons. The Shadow Chancellor and partner of Popeye, Annalise Dodds, said Sunak needs to follow what's in the interest of the country and not party politics. Because, hey, I guess that's Labour's job and they don't want to be distracted from their infighting by having to look at economic stuff. Jesus, Rishi, be considerate for once. 
We'll see what Sunak announces on Wednesday, or if you're listening to this after Wednesday, then I hope you're enjoying the prospect of saving the country by taking eight members of your family to a Nando's to get 3p off the bill and ensure Covid keeps going so we never have to quite make it to the suffering from the aftermath. Sunak says that his party had gone big and gone early when providing support and that there's more to come, making the whole thing sound like he's a teenager boasting about having sex for the first time, despite everyone really knowing he was just premature noisy and ultimately all involved were left unsatisfied. What is going to get some money is the school sector, and Education Secretary and Joker in Batman the Animated Series, Gavin Williamson, was so excited to announce the £6,000 that each school will get that he insisted that actually they could spend it on more teachers. Yes, as you all know, it's only £6,000 per teacher now, didn't you realise? Unless, of course, you get a rescue teacher or one from a friend who's breeding them, in which case it's cheaper. I was about to say it's remarkable that Williamson has no idea how much a teacher's wage is, but actually it's not remarkable at all, is it? It's exactly what we all expected. Williamson is the sort of man who, if you asked him what the cost of a pint of milk was, he'd tell you, well, it's free, of course, and delivered by a small boy on a penny farthing, whose only pay is the joy he receives from the gift of giving. Aside from inadequate funding, Williamson also announced a plan for secondary schools to consider giving face-to-face summer schools to help students catch up. Because, hey, what teenagers really need after being trapped indoors for ages is to be trapped indoors even more and during the summer. Still, I'm sure teachers will be really excited to know that they've been rewarded for working throughout the year without adequate protection gear or priority vaccines by being asked to do even more of it but during their holidays to make up for the time they weren't able to catch COVID while at home. Secondary school kids will also have to wear face masks when they return, but at least that means they can't get caught chewing gum, so that's a win. And plus, they'll have to have two Covid tests a week taken at home. Why is it this government is so focused on endless tests for pupils? Why can't they all just do one at home and then submit a set of Covid coursework at the end of term with a portfolio showing all the workings out? Seriously. School's back next week, but the government message to everyone else is, as new adverts confirm, keep going, stay at home, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, how can you keep going if you're not actually going to go anywhere? Saying that, it does make clear about what the government consider to be progress. 20 million people have now had their first jab, and the plan is to continue to vaccinate people by age instead of job, because frankly, it's just rude to think that people under 40 might want to teach or be in the police force rather than piss away their lives pointlessly, as it's really ruining the narrative over making sure it's their fault the future will be shit. Sorry, I mean more shit. There are considerations about introducing vaccine passports to help ease lockdown, meaning that people who've had their jabs could have greater access to events or travel. But many are really concerned about this. Some because it's more control over their freedom, but those people would probably be fine and stop asking questions if the passports were blue. Others are more rightly worried that it could lead to discrimination, which I am concerned about. But as Leeds and Reading Festival have announced they will be going ahead in August, I find the idea that the only people able to attend will be middle-class white pensioners really very funny. Six cases of the Brazilian variant virus have been found in the UK, but Health Secretary and Victorian spoon Matt Hancock insists that it's all under control as they know where five of the people who tested positive are and it's just one of them that they have absolutely no details of and could be running rampant wiping themselves on everything in sight. Hancock says there's no evidence the sixth person didn't follow the quarantine rules, but I suppose that's because there's no evidence of them whatsoever. The health secretary said the goal is to contain the transmission to those six individuals, so I suppose they've currently got an 83% success rate, which is more than enough for Hancock to rehire himself for a very large fee. Brexit is going so well that the government have paid for adverts in all the newspapers to let us know that a whole three British businesses out of thousands are thriving because of it. So that's all right then. It's like classing a plane crash as a major success because two of the 300 passengers didn't die. 
Actually, based on the numbers, that plane crash would be more successful than Brexit so far. You can tell it's spring because the European Research Group have resurfaced from hibernating in their swamp to demand that the Northern Irish Protocol that they all voted for and backed now needs to be scrapped, actually, as it's really no good. Poor them. If only they'd known what they were voting for or had ever actually done any research on Europe at all, apart from pointing a stick at a medieval map that showed that across the sea were some monsters and then the edge of the earth. Big Brexiteer MP and small clay gonad Andrew Bridgden wrote to Minister of State and what if Ard Man animated a doorstop David Frost to insist that the UK ban imports of bottled water from the EU in return for the ban of the import of shellfish from the UK to them. It seems a particularly stupid retaliation for something that he's actively voted to make happen, but maybe Bridgen's hoping that if there's less water in the UK, there's also less ways to dilute his already very wet ideology. Maybe, considering how much Bridgen's already struggled to read, he saw EAU on a bottle and assumed it was direct from the Commission. The Prime Minister has called for a campaign for British people to eat British fish in order to save the fishing industry, an eat-trout-to-help-out scheme, if you like. (laughs) Thing is, Brits don't particularly like eating British fish, preferring bland white fish from abroad, much like our immigration policies. In Scotland, they're being far more cautious with the lifting of lockdown than England, as though their actual independence plan is just to out-survive the rest of Britain. Scotland's first minister and star of Dexter's laboratory, Nicola Sturgeon, is facing calls to resign if she has indeed broken ministerial code by lying to Scottish Parliament about the allegation of harassment against former leader and Baron Greenback, Alex Salmond. The thing is, as we've all learned from the Westminster government, what breaking the ministerial code really means is that you never ever apologise and get given an even bigger and better job. If Sturgeon's lucky, she might even get to be unlawful a few times too. Fingers crossed. Scottish Labour has a new leader in the shape of Lego figure Anas Sawa, who's become the first Muslim leader of a UK political party, which is very progressive. But luckily for Labour, he balances that out with politics that aren't. Sawa once claimed his family business didn't pay a living wage to its staff because it didn't have to, an excuse that only really works if you employ zombies. The Cabinet Office has dismissed complaints about tweets from the Equalities Minister and Simon from the Chipmunks, Kemi Badenoch, by saying that she is personally responsible for her Twitter account. If that's true and MP accounts are personal ones, not government, not only can we report the crap out of them, but also can someone please hack them all and let them have to individually ask Twitter for permission to get them back. The Supreme Court refused Shemima Begum permission to return to the UK, denying her her British citizenship rights. On the plus side, she doesn't have to spend 10 days in a quarantine hotel before living in a pandemic-filled cronyism-led country, so they may well have made the decision in her best interests after all. The Home Office say they are pleased, as, being a former IS bride, Begum's views don't fit in with their fundamentalist hostile regime, which involves forcing the country to go ahead with extreme beliefs. And lastly, Labour deputy and Simpsons extra Angela Rayner has caused outrage in the right-wing press after claiming a pair of Apple AirPods on her expenses for £249. Silly, silly Angela. If only she paid a good friend £12 billion to make some expensive headphones that didn't work, that would have been far better. And it's that sort of small-scale thinking that's why Labour will never get into government. Fetid ugly fruit, Donald Trump made his first speech since his presidency at the Conservative Political Action Conference. And weirdly, people willingly watched it, even though they don't actually have to pay attention to any of his shit anymore. That must be like leaving the dentist and then returning after hours to ask them to drill into your gums just for kicks. And Prince Philip has been transferred to another hospital for treatment for infection and heart problems. I mean, I'm not saying the royal family are selfish, but it would be just like him to die at the very time that absolutely none of us need a bank holiday. 
Hey, 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 Paul Paul Bruds, how are you? Yeah, it's finally March again. It's like it's never, ever stopped being March for a year. But hopefully at the end of this March, it'll be a whole new world where we can all go out and do all the things we haven't been able to do since last March. Well, for at least a week before we then probably have to go back indoors again. I hope you're doing all right this week. I'm finding a tiny bit of occasional sunshine um, just markedly helping everything. I think I said it last week and then there was a little bit more this week and it's just helped. Even if that sunshine is a bastard liar and I went running the other day thinking, oh, it's basically the summer in my shorts and T-shirt and then I had frozen numb hands for like the first 10 minutes. Um, at the same time, I think I'm now at least a year younger than I was before due to cryogenic freezing. So that is uh, that is good. Now, I'm aware this isn't very exciting to talk about, but let's be blunt. I mean, there is very little to talk about anyway, isn't there? I mean, I'm terrified of the small talk I'm going to have when I see people again, like see my pals. Oh, there was that one day when there were more parking spaces on our road than I've seen in a year, and I don't know why. I mean, that is going to be like the high points of my chat. It's going to be awful. So anyway, um, what I was going to say is I've kept up going running since last year, and I've been going two to three times a week since. And on Sunday... I finally did a 10k run for the first time, uh, ran continuously uh, for just over an hour. And let me say, um, I wouldn't recommend it. Actually, sitting is 100% more enjoyable. Sitting and eating, definitely, definitely better. And saying that, the post-run being able to eat lots is great. And I really wish someone had sold running to me that way before. Like, everyone's always been like, well, you've got to run because you've got to get fit and it's like healthy or you've got to do exercise. No one's ever said, do you know if you run a lot, you can eat even more stuff? Like, if you'd sold it to me, if they'd done that, I'd have been running since I was about six years old. Like, endlessly. I'd never have stopped. So, anyway, I now know for sure that were something to chase me at slower than 6 minutes 39 per kilometre for no more than 10.5 kilometres, that I could get away. So I guess that's pretty handy, right? Very specific, but very handy. Either way, very nice to achieve something, even if it's just a virtual small medal on a phone app that means nothing. Um, Hey, though, this here podcast, well, not this one, it's only just out, but the live one that I did for Leicester Comedy Festival a few weeks ago, that has been nominated for one of the Leicester Comedy Festival Awards. Yeah, the Community Award, which I think means they didn't find it funny, but it helped to food banks and they have to acknowledge it. Anyway, it's very nice to be nominated for something, and I have no idea what it means if I win, but I assume, as it's a Community Award, I probably have to share it, which would seem appropriate, I guess. Um, So thank you to everyone who watched that one or has since uh, listened to the bonus episode of it and helped donate to the Woodgate Community Food Bank um, even though the Comedy Festival haven't actually given me any of the ticket money yet so I haven't donated uh, yet might be a while they always take ages with these things they probably should have waited to nominate me till they do that otherwise for all they know I could have taken all the money and spent it on a glamorous holiday to oh no wait oh yeah fair enough I can't go anywhere Tarloads again for being here. Special Tarloads to Christine for donating to the Kofi this week. And also, um, big thanks to all of you who've bought things at British Boxers as part of the 10% off promotion that I've been doing on this show with the adverts at the beginning. Um, that has actually worked out really well for um, both myself and the lovely pants-making team. So I really, really appreciate if you've done that. Hooray for vague attempts at ethical advertising. Take that, Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, anyway, should you want to financially assist this never-ending slog to find ways to describe our increasingly fuck-looking Prime Minister, oh, he's just looking awful, but... I'm really running out of words. Um, and hey, I mean, I know gigs are coming back soon. Every offer I've seen for gigs that's coming up, like everywhere's been going, yeah, gigs going to be back. We're booking again. And they all kind of say, well, we can't have many people in the show. So the fee will be 50% less than normal. Meaning that after driving there or getting the train, you've lost money. And I mean, to be fair, I do kind of want to leave my flat that much. I am tempted, but 
maybe I should run to gigs. Maybe that's how to make it cost effective. Anyway, sorry. What I was going to say is, of course, um, you can fling Dosh at the uh, Kofi.com forward slash Parpol Bro site, join the Patreon.com forward slash Parpol Bro, or just via the ACAST support button. Or buy something at British-Boxers.com uh, using the Parpol Bro 10 code. Um, and obviously, if you can't do that, please just give the show a nice review on one of the podcast platforms, or just shout about it to your friends, enemies, or even frenemies or enemies. Okay, very quick admin this week. Um, This is an odd one, but I thought I should bring it up, right? Because I've noticed it. You may or may not have noticed some odd noises in the background of the podcast recently, and I just thought I should clear up that it's not me being exceptionally flatulent. Oh no, I've learned how to make sure that that stuff isn't heard on the microphone. I'm very good at it. Um, No, it's the chair I sit on. It's got squeaky. I don't know if you can hear it. I don't, I don't know how to fix that. Um, it's a plastic chair. I don't know what it is that I can do to fix it. I just thought it was important that you know, in case um, A, you were just spreading rumours about my windy issues, or B, you were worried that I was about to be attacked by mice, or C, you know, that I was recording the show in a very unsafe hot air balloon. Don't worry, it's none of those things. It's my chair. And I will learn how to make plastic chairs not squeaky, and then hopefully it will never, ever bother you again. Or I won't fix it, and then um, it will just cover up when I am very gassy. I'm not sure. I haven't worked it out yet. Um, okay, thing two. Um, I don't really know why I need to inform you of this either, but it feels polite. I'm going to have a small one or two week break over the Easter or holiday bit because, uh, well, I'm knackered uh, doing this show and I am running out of ways to describe our increasingly fuck-looking Prime Minister and need a break to think of some. Um, plus, you'll probably all be gallivanting around in the sunshine seeing friends and family then, and the last thing you'll want to do is listen to this show until you get bored of your friends a week or so later and then come back. So, uh, you don't need to know that. It's weeks away, but I feel like I've got to book the time off with you so you all know it's happening and none of you tried to book the time off first. Lastly, um, if you didn't listen to last week's show, the Fire Safety Bill Amendment didn't get voted through and they didn't have time to debate it because they're all bastards. Um, my MP sent me a very pissy reply to my email asking him to vote for it. Um, and then he recalled the email that he replied, which didn't work, and then he sent exactly the same one again. Brilliant. Um, anyway, as you can imagine, um, while expected, that is terrible news for those stuck in buildings with unsafe cladding. So please do continue to support the campaign at endarcladdingscandal.org. And I'll try and do a bit more of a mention about that amendment next week, along with all the the GPE places that have been bought by an American company and of course the budget on future shows all of that on future shows there's no time on today's because on this week's show it's a very long and oh it's long but it's a really interesting chat with Dr Chris Roberts who is a lecturer in political journalism at Roehampton University and I ask him all about them medias plus a teeny tiny bit about the Labour Party in the middle because I feel like I've been neglecting them lately but then again judging by the polls so is everyone else so hey at least I'm on trend Whoever controls the media controls the mind, said Jim Morrison of The Doors, who lightly said that so that people would think he just watched too much news instead of taking heroin lots. It's pretty clear that the mainstream media holds a good chunk of political power in the UK, and it's very hard to convince yourself that with great power it has any sort of great responsibility. In fact, it really doesn't feel like Spider-Man would have that code of ethics working for a large-scale newspaper in the UK in 2021. But while it's clear that without such a large amount of headlines labelling people as scroungers, the EU is some sort of all-powerful evil overlords who ruin bananas, or that going to the pub is more important than not wiping out half of the population, then yes, we'd almost certainly be in much nicer times. But can all of that be blamed on the media, or are they just another branch of the grim tree that is the establishment? Is it just that so much of the media is owned by the same few billionaire animated prunes who thrive on hate like a particularly unexciting Sith Lord? Or do factors like the lack of money for investigative journalism mean all we have is a copy and paste machine driven by a need for drama and making sure no one is more than one breaking news tweet away from an anxiety attack? 
are the biggest journalists in the pockets of the Conservative Party and how can they fit in there when they're already stuffed with rolled notes from donors? Or is it more that having an unnamed source, because so many of these sources' parents appear to have been quite lazy when it came to their kids' monikers, is it more that having an unnamed source handing you a story on a plate is a lot more convenient than having to work out just how it is this week that asylum seekers with nothing more than the clothes on their backs are somehow also powerful enough to destroy the entire fabric of British existence? And when no one is currently happy with the major broadcasters, will the launching of supposedly independent, you know, in the way that they can decide what shirts their backers can buy them to wear on screen, independent channels such as GB News or UK News, will they make things much worse or be so bonkers and right-wing that they'll cause some sort of run back to the only mostly over-the-top news that we all knew and hated before? Well, this week I asked all of those questions and more to someone who specialises in knowing about that their media. Dr Chris Roberts is a senior lecturer at the Department of Media, Culture and Language at Roehampton University and specialises in political journalism. And he very kindly agreed to let me ask him absolutely loads of questions about it all. As this weekly podcast is largely dictated to by what's in the news, it only makes sense for me to really find out if I'm part of the problem and should instead be getting my info from the way the wind is blowing or the tea leaves or something like that instead of the old MSM. Now, very quickly, before you hear it, there are a number of clicks and bumps through this interview, um, which is because, unfortunately for Chris, his laptop died just days before we spoke and he ended up having to use an iPad for our Zoom call. Turns out iPads like to record every single tiny noise in the room. Um, It doesn't bother me, but I know some of you will probably write in and tell me that it sounded like we spoke through the Young Percussionist of Year Awards or something, so please don't do that. Also, uh, this is a long chat because, well, there was a lot to cover and I've left all of it in because, I'll be honest, it was absolutely fascinating talking to Chris and I hope you will enjoy too. Here is Chris. Chris, uh, first question is one that I'm sure uh, listeners are just going to scream what they think the answer is at at this podcast as I ask it. But it's something I'm I'm genuinely curious about, um, which is sort of how balanced... British media and news is in 2021 and and the reason I'm always curious about it is because I've got my own opinions but I you know I'm aware that left-wing and right-wing people both seem to think that it's regularly biased against them um and that makes me often wonder is it is it biased or just sort of sensationalist and and chasing the, the drama as opposed to um political bias so so over to you the expert how balanced is it now uh yeah I it's I don't it's not that balance I don't think to be honest I mean when you look up at when you look at the kind of makeup of the British press by which I mean the printed press sometimes referred to as legacy media then uh 73% of it so the figures I saw recently a couple of weeks ago 73% of it now in terms of readership is dominated by two companies or if you prefer to think of it two men <laughs> so DMGT which is Daily Mail General Trust um which owns the Mail, the Mail on Sunday, and the Metro, and News UK, which is the Sun, Sun on Sunday Times and Sunday Times, um, they dominate 73% is, is those two. So the, the two men would be, you know, Jonathan Harmsworth, or sometimes referred to as Lord Rothermere, and Rupert Murdoch control more than two-thirds of the UK's um, print newspaper market. Um, if you add in um, the owners of the Express and the Star, and the Sunday, or Star on Sunday, I think it's called, and the Mirror, and the Sunday Mirror, and the Sunday People, so seven newspapers. They're owned by Reach, a company called Reach, um, and Reach owns lots and lots and lots of local newspapers as well. But if you add in Reach, then that's an extra 17%. So you get to 90%. So 90% of the media is kind of owned by three companies. Um, so you can kind of take a political economy approach, I guess, and you, you, know, you can look at that sort of concentration um, of media, concentration of the discourse, I guess. Um, you know, you, you can definitely ask a question about how compatible that is with democracy. Um, 
But I guess that, you know, there's a growing chorus of people, I guess, as well, who say that no one buys newspapers anymore. And it is true that, that um, numbers are diminishing. They definitely are. Um, but the figures for what's called monthly brand reach, um, which also includes online news consumption, demonstrates that GM, DMGT has a uh, monthly brand reach of 77 million people. Uh, reach is 73 million and News UK is 56. Now, U- News UK's 56 million is in part because they have a paywall at the Times and the Sunday Times. Otherwise, that would be probably equally stratospheric. Um, so, you know, in terms of readership and, and, you know, the political orientation of most of those newspapers, obviously, Reach have some notionally sort of left centre newspapers. But, you know, that's quite a concentration of ownership. Um, and that is, it's important to obviously say as well that this is not to say, and I'm not suggesting at all, that you know, media effectively brainwashes us. Um, media academics like me are always trying to steer away from that kind of oft-repeated and you know, kind of erroneous claim that we get brainwashed. Um, media can't, can't really tell us what to think. But I'm going to quote um, McCombs and Shaw, right? They're two very good uh, media academics. Um, they say that media cannot tell us what to think but it is remarkably successful at telling us what to think about, by which they mean through sort of the journalistic processes of uh, selection and amplification. Certain stories and types of stories are given prominence um, and a bit, you know, and priority over others. So the types of stories, particularly, particularly political news stories, which I'm sure we'll come to, um, a certain type of story dominates. But you also mentioned balance a particular term you said balance um you also talk about bias but i'll, I'll come back to bias in a moment <laughs> but when you said balance balance is an important interesting term in media studies as well particularly when it comes to the bbc because they have this idea of this notion of balance but they're quite problematic what the bbc tends to mean in terms of balance is that each political party and it's often weighted by their representation in parliament um is given sufficient opportunity to be heard and to be present on screen but you know you can probably work out that's kind of a, that's kind of self-fulfilling because it's based on parliamentary representation. So if the Tories have currently have an eighty-seat majority, then you know they're, they're bound to be given a lot of space as they ought to be because they're the governing party. But it, it means that other other political forces, other political actors, you know, let's sort of, let's say the Green Party, because they don't have that much representation in Parliament, then they don't get their voice heard, and then they don't, they're not able to shift the discourse in that way. So that's quite problematic. Um, so it's sort of self-fulfilling. So through repetition, you kind of reproduce roughly the same kind of ideological mix we already had. Now, of course, you can't wholly dislocate that from the, the pretty terrible version of democracy that we have that isn't very representative. Um, but the media focus on balance, I think, is, is a bit of a... The BBC's idea of balance is that each political party, and particularly when it comes to the main two, are, are given sufficient space. Um, but when the parties are not particularly different, and I'm not suggesting that's the case at the moment, because I think there is, a, there is, there are some clear differences. Um, there isn't really much space to scrutinise uh, the governing party, maybe, or any particularly much space to challenge what you might call the status quo. Because there's also always been the problem, uh, particularly sort of 
less so I think very recently but there was always issue of balance meant that you'd have someone who'd come on a scientist to come and talk about climate change and what a threat it was and then for balance they'd have someone who didn't believe it was going on and it, you know it's something well I'm not sure that's balance so much as just a, a waste of our time isn't yeah it? there was a, there was a there was a brilliantly um done sketch I think by John Oliver on his uh, last week tonight where he said uh <laughs> When it, whenever they talk about, you know, climate change in, in US media, and, and similar is true over here, although we have slightly tighter regulations, and also the BBC have now addressed this issue, uh, but only kind of after the horse had bolted to some extent. But John Oliver's um, sketch was brilliant because he said whenever you, whenever we're talking about climate change in US media, it's always one person versus one other. And the one person always arguing that climate change is real is Bill Nye, the science guy, and against some other dude. And it just said it's not that's not an accurate representation. So the sketch was, OK, well, we're going to do an accurate representation. So we're going to get 97 scientists here around the table and you're going to argue for the scientific consensus. And then three other people, you're going to argue not in favour of it. And, and of course, it, it, it went into a catastrophic mess. But that was the idea <laughs> of the debate. Um, yeah. So, that, I mean, that, that is an important point. Is, I mean, you mentioned the BBC, and I think that's one of the sort of main thing I see people uh, complaining about or standing up for at the moment, because, uh, you know, as, as far as we're all meant to think it is, uh, it is a balanced institution and it's supposedly, um, or, or does report facts. And I feel very sort of unable to speak about it with any clarity. I, I honestly don't know. Is there an issue of political bias with, with the BBC? I mean, it, perhaps it, it's quite obvious, I think, with some newspapers. I think everyone knows, for example, that the Telegraph will just report whatever number 10 would like at the moment. But with things like the BBC, is that an issue of political bias? Or is it, um, you know, I, I, I suppose a lot of my views on the media are sort of based on Flat Earth News, uh, Nick Davis' book, and I don't know how much is, has changed since then. But I wonder, is it political bias or is it kind of lazy journalism is it a lack of money for investigation is it a lack of um money to maybe legally you know stand up to libel cases and things like that or is it that actually there is only a, a very limited political viewpoint on these channels yeah it's a, that's a really good question and quite a complex one and with with lots of different threads um so with regards to bias so bias look i'm sure it exists right i'm sure we can find examples of bias i'm quite certain it exists um it's quite a loaded term in some ways so um you know i think it's a it's a problem um as i said earlier you know you could do a kind of political economy analysis of media and see who owns it right that's that's a, uh, a particular uh methodology you do political economy analysis of media which doesn't of course affect the bbc because it's not it's owned by us at least notionally um so you could do that, or you could do some sort of uh, class dynamics analysis. My, my colleague at Roehampton, actually, uh, Dr. Gary Merrill, did a really good uh, research paper on this. It's just been published about the, the class dynamics of the very senior journalists in the country, not just the BBC, but ITV and the Guardian, the Telegraph, and their um, their class position and their schooling background, and you know all that kind of stuff. And the, there's a remarkable similarity, a remarkable kind of confluence between. Um, you know, the front bench of the Conservative Party, but also the front bench of the Labour Party and and very senior journalists. Like the, many of them were, you know, uh, that went to private schools or to Oxford and Cambridge and that sort of thing. Um, so you could do, you know, you could you could analyse it in that way. So I think we probably could find it as kind of ideological bias and you might want to apply that term, but um, it's one I try and avoid, but only only really because if we take bias to mean a deliberate attempt to mislead or to persuade, 
So from my perspective, using the methodology that I tend to employ, I couldn't, I can't really say uh, with too much, you know, with too much clarity that there has been a deliberate attempt to mislead or persuade. You know, for that, you might need to do kind of ethnographic study, which I don't really do. So if that's what we take it to mean, using my analysis, um, I, I can't really prove a deliberate attempt anyway. But you, you can say that the text has a bias, but anyway. It is possible to level that claim, and I think people do, and I think people do really good research on that. But what I tend to do is I look at the, what you might refer to as the structural conditions of journalism, but also the reporting templates, right? So there's particular sort of templates that are applied. So um, there's, a, there's a journalism academic called Gaddy Volsford. Um, uh, he has a lovely quote, which I use a lot. So if, you, if, you'll, if you'll permit me, I'll, I'm going to read out a quote, right? It's quite a long Please quote. Do, yeah. Um, but I think it's a, it's a brilliant quote. I use it a lot. Um, so I'll read it out in a sec. But um, uh, for context, he's referring here to peace journalism, right? So I'm going to read this out. He refers to peace journalism. Of course, there's no such thing, right, as peace journalism. But he's struck by the fact that we do have war journalism. And we have war correspondents, but we don't have peace correspondents. We don't have the peace equivalent, right? So he says, this is the quote. <clears throat> Apologies, it's quite long, but I think it sums up beautifully. He says, there is an inherent, an inherent contradiction between the logic of a peace process and the professional demands of journalists. A peace process is complicated. Journalists demand simplicity. A peace process takes time to unfold and develop. Journalists demand immediate results. Most of a peace process marked by dull, tedious negotiations, journalists require drama. A successful peace process leads to a reduction in tensions. Journalists focus on conflict. Many of the significant developments within a peace process must take place behind closed doors. Journalists demand information and action. And I think that so beautifully sums up at least some of the problems, right? So the way we do political journalism in the UK tends to be about drama and about character. It's hardly ever about the nuance of policy prescriptions and the long-term solutions to our many crises, right? In political reporting, it's also an issue of news values, right? So you have this this academic term called news values. So what are news values? News values, political reporters and political correspondents tend to prioritise certain news values. And one of those news values would be immediacy. So the immediacy of what's going on, the drama, the kind of intrigue, the character, the, the next day's headlines. They're really, that's what, that's what they tend to be focused on. But politics, as, as I understand the term, is, you know, the difference kind of political and ideological you know, contours and the different kind of solutions to long-term crises, whatever those crises might be, right? So they might be climate change, housing, healthcare, or the care needs of an aging population, all of these kind of things which require long-term structural thinking. Politics deals with that stuff, but political journalism doesn't really. Political journalism deals with deals with the fallout and the character and the kind of drama of what's going on in Westminster. So while notionally, at least all those things I've just mentioned are a part of politics, they are not a part of political reporting. They don't feature heavily and they don't feature really as a routine part of political reporting. So the question I pose, and I pose this to students, is why is that? Well, in part, it goes back to the Woolsthorpe quote, right? That journalists need drama, right? That's just, journalism, journalism is essentially storytelling. And great storytelling often requires drama and character and that sort of stuff. And it's perfectly good, you know, sometimes that's really, really good and really interesting. But, I mean, it's not political journalism as, as, as we need it, okay? So if there is a bias, I think there's a bias against understanding, but that's partly because of the, the kind of the reporting templates and the structural conditions. 
so one of the other th features might be the um, uh, the election cycle, right? So political reporting tends to be really tied up with the election cycle, right? The election cycle, you might say, access a sort of discursive constraint in political journalism. So the short-term nature or short-term culture of Westminster politics coalesces really, really tidily and neatly with the short-term culture of political journalism, where they're just chasing the immediacy and the unambiguity and the clarity and the easy headlines and the easy stories. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, they're interested in breaking news and unambiguity and all that sort of stuff. The problem is to political reporters, that is politics. But actually to us and to solve our many crises, that isn't politics. Politics needs to be much more detailed and long form than that. So it's a sort of silo. Um, politics is placed in this sort of silo. Um, or, you know, it's to use the is the academic term that is my specialism. It's a discursive formation. It's a particular sort of narrow genre, um, but it's not really doing as much good. There's a clearly another related problem, I think, at least, um, and it's what uh, it's about journalists' relationship with their sources, is what, what some uh, media academics refer to as some um, primary definers. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is you know, there'd be, especially, I, I get far too much of uh, the, the public opinion from Twitter, which is not public opinion whatsoever, but the, the kind of furore about, uh, especially during the Dominic Cummings era in number 10, of how often there was an unknown source or an unnamed source from number 10 and how that was, how news was broken. And we've had it with all the coronavirus regulations as well, how they always were released a day or so before it was from an unknown number 10 source. Um, and that always... Again, I, I uh, you sort of mentioned the bias is a very loaded term, but part of me thought, well, if you're getting your news directly from the sources, that is uh, th th coming from government, that's obviously questionable. But also, is it just easy? I guess it's it's easy. You know, the the story's coming because it's handed to you on a plate. Yeah, which does it's actually, yeah, that that's it's a good point, and it relates to um, the kind of end of your question, which I never really got to because I just blathered on. Um, but I. Uh, so there's another journalism academic called Gay Tuckman, right? And she says that news is the ally of legitimated institutions. And by legitimated institutions, she, she really means she really means um, you know those kind of social political uh, organisations that routinely provide reportable information, right? They provide um, a consistent slew of reportable activity. Um, uh, you know, they provide newsworthy information. So the point is, so if to go back to this kind of lazy journalism, right? Now, I understand that if you're a journalist, right? So what I, I've been teaching media and cultural studies for about 18 years, but for 10 of those 18, I've also been teaching journalism. Now, when I, when I first started, and you know, and I was first started just talking about media and cultural studies, and I was kind of, you know, this angry, young-ish um, academic, furious at stuff. Um, and I thought, you know, I can, I, can, I can really make a difference here. And of course, no one ever does. But the reason I bring that up is because for the last 10 years, I've also been teaching journalism and actually it's made me much more sympathetic to journalists. Um, and I realised that they do have sometimes quite a difficult job to do, right? So, and I, and I, but I agree largely with Tuckman. She says it's this ally of legitimated institutions um, because they, they, they produce all this information that's, that's easy to report, right? So, and I understand that, right? So if you're a, if you're a young journalist or if you're any journalist right, and your beat, your, your journalistic beat is politics, who are your sources? Who would your what's called primary definers be? Right? The primary definers, another academic term from cultural studies and media studies, primary definers are, are those very senior sources in government and legit, legitimated institutions 
um, that primarily define the orientation of the story or the gender, the discourse of the story. So if you're a journalist, who are your primary defines? If you're if you're a journalist that beaches politics, well, it's going to be spads, you know, the political advisors, politicians, um, perhaps the civil service. They're your sources, right? And that makes sense. If you're if you're a political reporter, your beat is Westminster. So there's a really great piece of research done by um, uh, a really great academic called Mike Berry at Cardiff University. He did an analysis of uh, the Today programme and their coverage of the financial crisis, right? At the height of the financial crisis, Mike Berry did six weeks worth of analysis of the, I think it's the 710 and the 810 interviews. And it was at the height of the financial crisis. So he did six weeks worth of analysis and he discovered and it's a really good peer-reviewed academic paper, that 80% of the sources, so 80% of those primary definers, were either from the city, which is banks, insurance companies, or hedge funds, or government. Well, unsurprisingly, their solutions, I did the air quote thing for people listening, to the crisis were inadequate. I mean, it's basically like saying, okay, so you guys got us into this. Please, can you tell us how to get out of it? Right? It's absurd. So, I mean, I can relate this abstractly, I guess, to the leadership of uh, Labour when it was under Corbyn. And, the, you know, of course, there are loads of problems with that. But one of the interesting things and troubling things was that his strength was also his weakness, right? Well, and what I mean by that is that Corbyn's leadership was not sustained by the Parliamentary Labour Party, right, by the PLP. The PLP were largely not supportive of him. Now, equally, also, also importantly, the Parliamentary Party were the already, you know, with the existing MPs with an already existing and developed relationship with political reporters and political journalists. And they would, you know, periodically feed bad information or, you know, that they would they would do interesting and problematic things. But Corbyn wasn't sustained by by that that aspect. Corbyn was sustained by the wider social movements, right? And like momentum and things like that. And the, and the wider social forces that came flooding into the Labour Party. Well, political reporters, if you're a political reporter, you don't have a footprint in those movements. And equally troubling, I don't think the political reporters had any, they, they certainly had no desire to cultivate those relationships at all. They, they, just, they just didn't, they weren't really interested in that. So there are, the political reporters don't really have a footprint in those wider social cultural movements and the social forces. Political reporting is characterised, I think at least, by what I would refer to as a sort of sociological incuriosity. Because surely a reporter, if you're a reporter, you're a political reporter. Now, this, this, is, this is a utopia, right? I know this isn't what we have. <laughs> I think if you're a political reporter and reporting on UK politics, you, want, you would probably need to understand or at least wonder what was going on in 2015 to 2019. Okay, what's going on? So you might ask, right? you might be inclined to ask if you're a political reporter, is this left movement an aberration? Answer, no, it's happening all over the place. Shall we examine why? Where has it come from? What shapes it or sh or motivates the activists? What are the issues that they've identified and, and they think need addressing? Even if you challenge all this, right, you can ask these questions. Why and how are these social forces, you know, how are they trying to material affect things? What are they seeking to do? Through which means? And perhaps most importantly for a political reporter in UK news, why now and why coalesce around the Labour Party? I would say such questions are essential to ask, right? But not, but they didn't do the BBC, but also other public service broadcasters and other other, you know, serious newspapers. I think they've they've got an obligation to kind of at least understand that, right? But I think it's in part, you know, it's a matter of journalistic practice 
I think the problem is structural. Political correspondents, no matter how good they are at journalism, they require access, and they require access to very senior people. They don't require access to the social media, right? And I think that's partly, there are many problems with the Corbyn leadership and, and the Labour Party at the time. I don't mean to get into that at all, but I, you know, I'm, I'm happy enough to say that I'm broadly supportive of, you know, a kind of left-wing progressive movement and uh, was a member of the Labour Party and still am a member of the Labour Party. Um, and campaigned for them in 2017 and in 2019, right? And and not and not suggesting that there were no issues at all, but it was the first time in my lifetime that I thought there might be some genuine uh, hope for uh, a sort of progressive change that might be in my um, wheelhouse, right? That might be that might be that might be to my taste. Right? Yeah. But they're I think they're reliant on their sources, right? So to come back to political reporters, sorry, they're re they're really reliant on their sources on their primary definers. So it's the role of the research itself that's the, that's the problem, right? Political storytelling templates, I would call that. Um, and they, they consistently apply their kind of political reporting and, and a particular template, and they, they don't really examine the sociological basis for the new left movements around the Labour Party, right? And they just didn't. And to come back to your original point about the, about the kind of lazy journalism, um, yeah, I, and like, as I said before, I'm, I'm a bit more sympathetic to journalists now. Right? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, every journalist out there is doing great work, but many, 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 many are, right? Most journalists I meet are, you know, they're conscientious and they want to do good stuff, but they are also, they're bound by, you know, reporting templates and their sources, but they're also bound, and you made a really good point in your question, by a lack of funding for res and resourcing. So if you're a young journalist and you, you make your money by filing copy, right? That's, that's, that's how, you, that's how you, you get a byline, you get paid, right? That might mean contemporarily producing five or six stories a day, which is incredible. I think it's absurd. There's no way a journalist actually doing journalism, right, can produce that much content if they're doing the job properly. Actually, I shouldn't say doing the job properly because many journalists do do that. It's just that they're working them to death and they're in, there isn't the resources. If you're a journalist with bills to pay, right, you're a young journalist. So I teach a lot of journalism students. You then go and work as journalists. If you're a young journalist and you've got bills to pay, and you, you know, you say to your editor, okay, well, I've got a really good story, but it's going to take me three weeks to chase it down, right? It's going to take me three weeks. I need to find sources. I need to do some research. Actually, it's going to be really challenging. What do you think the editor's going to say? They say, well, sorry, we haven't got the time for that. What our readers want is something else. So, you know, I mean, that's not to say that no stuff ever gets through, right? Because it does. But I think it's rare and it's hard and it's getting rarer and it's getting harder. I'm sort of wondering if part of it as well, you know, we've had a very unusual few years where obviously in the States, Donald Trump constantly slandered journalists and said that they, they were awful and liars. And then, you know, we've had it a, a little bit to an extent here. And we just had, I think, uh, Boris Johnson the other week uh, when we were speaking. Oh, it was a few days ago, actually, for, um, where he s told a bunch of students that journalists were, uh, I, I can't remember the phrase now, but he was quite uh, d degrading about journalists, despite him being one and saying, I think they always sort of caused trouble or something, which is pretty much what he did as a journalist. I think basically entirely on his own experience. But, you know, is, is there also that fear as well that if, if journalists are portrayed as troublemakers and and uh, as as the enemy, that that there must be a fear from journalists that they don't want to overstep the mark in a way or be be targeted for these sorts of things. So maybe that would dictate. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think that's probably a worry uh, for, for some. I mean, it, it does take a lot of courage to be Nick Davis, for instance. But he was, you know, he was kind of long in the tooth and very well established, and you know, paid a good salary. And Alan Rusbridge let him get on with that 
that job for months without filing much copy, just go and do this thing. But that I don't I don't think the the conditions currently exist. I mean that they do, but in much more in much in, in much rarer form, and they're, and they're, it's much smaller now. Um, so there, you know, the conditions do exist for the journalists to go and do really, really brilliant work. Um, but I don't think that's I don't think that's the norm. I think the norm now is as and you've already referenced in Nick Davis, the norm now is journalism. Um, and that doesn't serve our interests. Now, again, to be sympathetic to journalists having to do that, yeah, you know, they've got bills to pay, they've got, you know, a roof to keep over their head, they might have kids, you know, and I think lots and lots of them would would have ambitions to do something different or something more and you know, do something really, really good with their journalism. And lots of them do still, but I think the conditions that that existed for, for that kind of work are are diminishing, and they, they haven't whole, wholly gone. And of course, there are alternative outlets, uh, which I can mention a bit later if you want. Um, but yeah, so I, I I I take your point. I think there's definitely um, there's definitely a fear as well. I mean, everyone everyone would have that. Like every, every human being would have that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was sort of leading me on to the next question, really, which I want to, you know, is, is, is something that's, again, talked about a lot on Twitter, and I don't know how many people in the real world actually care, but there's been all the announcements of the kind of Fox News style independent news channels that are coming. I think we've got GB News and UK News, just sound incredibly similar. Um, and those uh, claiming they're both independent, they both seem to be quite sort of right wing in, in tone already uh, before they've launched. I'm judging them before they've launched. Um, but how... Do you think that's going to affect the media landscape having channels like that uh, that are available, you know, openly broadcast? And and a, a little optimistic bit of me goes, maybe that will make other news outlets go a bit more left wing as a sort of balance. But I'm I'm guessing that's that's not necessarily what would happen. No, no, it's funny you should say that actually because when I was thinking about it, uh, I did have the same uh, perhaps vague but hopeful, you know, hope. Uh, well, perhaps there will be some sort of counterweight. Yeah, I mean, I guess we are. You know, we're judging it before, but I mean, we're, we're, we're judging it by the by their own public relations to some extent. You know, and their, and their own hires, right? The people they've hired so far. Um, so you won't be surprised to hear that I, that I don't necessarily view it as that much of a a positive uh, step. In, you know, that kind of entry into the news market. I don't necessarily view it wholly positively. I'm trying not to view it wholly negatively, but it is, you know, it's sometimes a bit difficult. Um, but I get, I think there's a market for it. That's the thing. Um, you know, so, I mean, you could, you could look at it in a couple of different ways, right? So it's, you could say that it's, and, and both these things could be true, and of course neat could be true, but I think there's an element of truth for both of these things. It's like the latest in a long line of the, of the right managing to convince people and perhaps convince themselves that they're constantly on the back foot, that they're somehow the oppressed and the underrepresented. Um, there's a great piece, piece in The Guardian from September. Um, I can't remember who it's by. It might be by Leah E.P. Uh, anyway, she said, and it says, is, why does the right pretend the left runs Britain? And it's a really good question. Um, you know, this is, this is a, 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 right, a right government, right, an 80 seat majority, but even the official opposition are slightly tacking, slightly back towards the centre or to the right now. Um, as we've already mentioned, I've gone through the, you know, three quarters of the press, just two, two newspaper groups is overtly propagandizing on behalf of the right, really. Um, and it's not as if the left own the means of production, right? To use the Marxist term, you know, we own nothing. We've got nothing, right? We've got, you know, people shouting on Twitter and we had a social movement politics around the Labour. 
party for a while, not now putting its energy into the Labour Party, right? Um, but this idea that, the, you know, that the right is the oppressed and you can't say this these days, I mean, I, I can't I, I can't see how that's true. Um, so um, it's, it's almost like they won't, they're not going to be satisfied until there's no kind of left, left liberal, or, you know, even liberal sort of progressive voices. Um, but that might be too cynical, right? So it might just be a business opportunity. And I think in terms of a business opportunity, you can sort of see their point, right? From a business perspective, there probably is a market for this. I think there is a market for it. Plenty of people consider the left, the BBC to be a kind of hive of left-wing activism, uh, despite the overwhelming academic evidence from the contrary. That does seem to be, um, you know, a, a fairly widely held opinion. Not massively widely held, but I know that my father, for instance, um, he's, he's, he's no longer with us, but uh, he was always convinced that the BBC was full of lefties. Uh, and I wrote a PhD that demonstrated the opposite, gave it to him and he read it and thought it was very good and liked it. And then three months later, we'll be saying, ah, oh, but it's full. Of... So he forgot everything I ever wrote. <laughs> um, but that's all right. Um, uh, anyway, yes, I think there is an audience for it, right? I mean, we voted for Brexit, right? There is, there's clearly, there's an audience or there's an audience that, that, that feels they're not being served. Um, I guess it's like that old adage a little bit. Um, you know, if all you've ever known is privilege, then even every, equality begins to look like oppression. And I think, you know, there might be something in that. I think there is a market. So how will it affect the landscape? Who knows? Who knows? But as you said at the beginning um, of this question, you know, I suspect it won't be in a good way, but I have a vague hope that actually maybe, maybe it, will, it will mean some some counterweight, you know, maybe some other news channels uh, will, will step up a little bit. I don't know. I hope so. I'm always sort of aware that, that as you mentioned, you know, the, the funding isn't really there for the other political opinion in the way that it is for, for a lot of sort of right-wing opinion. And that, that often seems to be the biggest sort of say in who gets the loudest voice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really, there's a really brilliant media activist um, who, who I should, for full disclosure, I would say is a friend of mine. Um, and he's actually coming to speak to some of my students uh, from my politics in the media module in a couple of weeks' time. His name is Dan Hind, and he's a he's a great media activist. Um, and he is constantly, I mean, he, he writes so much, and he writes brilliantly, and he's very good. But one of his things that he keeps talking about on Twitter, and I think he's right, is um, that the, the, the only real means by which we mean financial means for broadly left-wing progressive movements you know and the only the only organizations with any money of, of that kind of type are unions and the the so the big unions uh, and they've never shown any interest at all in in you know backing the kind of media operation and it's a shame and and dan dan thinks that until we get that and now i'm now ventriloquizing dan and i'm probably i might be misquoting him but i think he i think he's he's perplexed at why the big unions, you know, there are still six million people members of trade unions, and there are some very big unions with some capital, right? Why are they not interested in in providing a media voice, you know, or at least providing the funding for a media voice? Yeah, it's. it's I mean, already the, the thought of the headlines from the other channels about a union funded TV station would just be <laughs> would just be absolutely horrendous, exactly. wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. It's fine for a billionaire to fund it. But not for a union. I yeah, mean, yeah, you're right. The headlines would be they'd be screaming. This would be terrible. But you know, it's it, it, just absurd. Yeah, it's com uh, completely, completely absurd. 
Yeah, sort of along the same lines, one of my other concerns, and, and again, uh, this is a concern that's, that's been brought to me a lot more uh, via social media than anywhere else, but, you know, there's there's been the announcement that Paul Dacra is likely to be named as the head of Ofcom. I don't think it's been uh, official yet, but when we've got the supposed sort of uh, media regulation or broadcast regulation service, and I know there's a lot of questions as to how <laughs> regulatory it is or how effective it is in what it does, um, you know... I, when when that's being regulated by someone who is against all regulation, um, where where does that kind of lead us? And and you know, are you are you concerned about that for the future of media? If it's if we're going to have people like Paul Dacre in that position, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, at this stage, I mean, if that he doesn't have to be named yet, I and mean, he's not been named yet, but just even floating it feels like we're being trolled by Johnson and the Tories, right? It's just. I mean, this is the biggest fu, right? <laughs> because because they can do it, right? It's as if Johnson's kind of looked around at the media landscape and thought, okay, who's had the most profound and arguably pernicious impact on British news in the last thirty years on the kind of discourse? Okay, find me that man, right? Ah, okay, we've got him. Now put him in charge of the body tasked with overseeing broadcast impartiality, objectivity, and the regulation of that. I mean, it's quite astonishing, right? But again, you know, perhaps it's a power grab. Um, but that might be too, you know, that might be a little bit too um, conspiratorial to see it as a power grab. I think it's just, it's, it's political manoeuvring. Um, it's important to not see it just as the individual, right? So Paul Dacre, you know, I'm no fan of Paul Dacre, um, but I think it's quite dangerous. It's potentially quite dangerous, right? Because the, the government are compromising some cherished and valuable safeguards, right? Even if in, in practice, those safeguards are pretty tepid, and they are, um, but I suspect if Dacre is appointed, they'll be watered down even more. Um, and I, you know, it, it does sound conspiratorial, but I mean, it looks like it's an attempt to consolidate conservative, and I mean, small c conservative hegemony. And the one of the reasons I think this, and I tweeted about this, um, which is where most of us do our, you know, political commentary, um, is that the what broadcasting remains the one vaguely functional part of our media ecology, right? Again, it's it's hardly perfect, right? It's definitely not. But it is at least vaguely functional, right? Because, you know, trust in print media is diminishing. It's collapsing. And, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So precisely the time when trusted information, not just information, but information that we can trust, is vital, is in the middle of a pandemic, right? A health pandemic where the communication of health policy needs to be trusted by most by all of us right let's say let's look for 95 percent of us need to trust this information ideally you'd want 100 right but that won't happen and right at this particular moment where they need that we need you know reliable information that we can all trust they're messing around with um you know broadcast regulation and they're, they're messing around with the one vaguely functional bit of our media ecology um and i think it's quite worrying i mean to to mess with that just so your your own political ideology is kind of hegemonized i think it's quite dangerous you know because newspapers are you know sort of toxic or they're overly propagandistic at least and they make no apology for that and you know they, they sort of don't have to it's a different market it's a different regulation um and you know social media which you know maybe we'll talk about in a moment is a relative free-for-all right it's a sort of wild west right um, but broadcasting, despite its many flaws, at least has the kind of remnants of legitimacy. There's some of that remaining. And I think this move potentially undermines that legitimacy. 
And of course, it licenses in both senses of the term, potentially at least a drift right. But who's going to challenge the government on this move? Who, who can challenge the government? The rest of the media? No. I mean, it's pre- sorry, that's pretty bleak, actually. <laughs> I'm not normally... <laughs> no, but, but it's, it's... I mean, this is my... You know, a, a, I don't really know how Ofcom functions or runs, and I, I sort of wondered how much as head he would have power over decision because you know this sort of nightmare scenario for me is is watching as as we mentioned earlier this this constant uh culture war that we're this big i uh, personally i believe sort of very fabricated and again i don't think a lot of people care uh, in in reality but you know we had all, every, lots of people kicking off that diversity did a black lives matter type dance on the tv or that that the black lives matter fist was shown during the fireworks and and there was loads of complaints about it all and and my worry is that you know with with uh poor, poor Dacre, you know, would he, as the head of Ofcom, is that the sort of thing that he could then just be very Daily Mail about and and ban all of these things and put fines on people? Or actually, as the head of Ofcom, would he not have that much say over? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think he's, as you're, if you're a head of an organisation, I guess you really, you're. It's more about uh, kind of glad handling and you know meeting powerful people, but also I think you can probably have a say in um, certain certain things, certain policies, and certain policy regulations and certain changes. My hunch would be that he would be much more deregulatory. So it wouldn't be about imposing, you know, stopping people doing things. I mean, even perhaps I'm wrong. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, I can kind of work out what his politics is. It's not difficult for us to work that out. And he's quite clear about it. But my hunch would be that he would be much more, you know, say he would be much more freer about, you know, licensing um, much more overtly propagandistic content, for instance. You know, there's a, there's a good reason why. Uh, television is is regulated in in the way it is. It's because you know it's it's based on spectrum bandwidth, and you know it's a scarce resource, um, and it comes unbidden into your home when you put your TV on. Those first five channels um, that comes into your home via the spectrum bandwidth. So there's there's the broadcasters on those channels have a have a specific you know obligation to be impartial and be balanced and things like that. So I mean, there's a good reason why it's regulated in that way, but. Um, yeah, I, I suspect his hunch would be to be more deregulatory. Yeah, I, I also sort of wondered, as I sort of, I made a joke about this before, but I did wonder, he knows so much about breaching regulations that maybe if 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 all the staff know that he likes something, they'll just think, oh, we should probably find that. That probably, <laughs> probably has probably uh, breached it in some way. Maybe that's the, the way they'll do it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Chris in a short second or two. But first... You have to give credit to the Labour Party, don't you? I mean, they've really gone for a whole rebrand with everything from not wanting to tax the rich, not really doing any oppositioning, being all pro-nuke weapons, and now it seems they're even eschewing the idea of democratic elections. You might remember that Liverpool's Labour Mayor and flesh potato Joe Anderson was arrested on suspicion to commit bribery, which aside from the potential criminal bit also meant that he was suspended from the party. Because, as you know, Labour only accept bribery if it's referred to as lobbying. Anderson agreed to step aside from his duties till his bail term was over and he was still planning to run for re-election as mayor in May, which would have been his third term, but then his bail period got extended till February and obviously now he can't mayor nothing. So that meant Labour needed a new candidate pronto and loads of people put themselves forward, which then got narrowed to a shortlist of three. Wendy Simon, the current acting mayor, which I think is who they get to be mayor on TV, obviously. Um, Then there's Anne O'Byrne, the former deputy mayor, and Lord Mayor Anne Rothery. All three were some sort of mayor already, meaning that when it comes to being all mayory, it sort of makes sense that they'd be on the list, doesn't it? But of course, trust Labour to focus on making it all nightmare instead. Members were told there'd be two weeks of campaigning before the vote, but ballots didn't get sent out when they were meant to. Then the party announced the selection process had been suspended and all three candidates had to be re-interviewed because, hey, what if the acting mayor had only played the part in a school play or something, or the Lord Mayor was actually a Mayor Lord or whatever? For three days, there was absolutely nothing, and then Labour announced they would reopen the selection process and actually none of the previous candidates could reapply. It was very odd, and everyone basically suspected that the party were concerned about the candidates, particularly Rothery, as she was an open supporter of former party leader and pinto bean Jeremy Corbyn. The whole thing looks very shifty, and it's not a great image to be scrapping an all-female shortlist either, but Labour are pushing ahead with the new selection process anyway. Liverpool's Labour councillors tried and failed to scrap the entire position of mayor, and several front-running candidates have already stood down, saying applying would be like crossing the picket line, which probably would have meant the party leadership would disqualify them anyway for even suggesting that they'd side with the workers. So it's looking very likely as a result that Liverpool may end up with an independent mayor and a complete loss for Labour. Still, hey, better lose than have a broad church of a party, right? I mean, that's definitely seemed to have been many of the party's main aim for quite some time. There's a lot of shenanigans going on with constituency Labour Party members too, with a number of them being purged and several now exiled members planning to strike against the party, as well as a group of African, Caribbean and Asian members who say that with the delaying of the Ford report, which looked into allegations of racism in the party, that the leadership is treating them with utter contempt. I guess nothing will make Labour more likely to appeal to Conservative voters than screwing over female candidates without any transparency as to why and treating people of colour with disdain. All Starmer really needs to do now is just ruffle his hair so it looks like he's been pulled backwards through a hedge. And I'm sure that the party will manage to return from being so, so behind in the polls to a government that's let 130,000 people die and somehow still manages to be electable. And now, back to Chris. But yeah, I mean, you know, because uh, Dake was one of the people very outspoken about the Leveson inquiry and seemed to hate that that was going on. I was very angry about the idea of press regulation. And... You know, I, I'm probably belittling uh, it somewhat, but it didn't seem to change anything. I feel like this many years down the line, um, and I've spoken to, I know that the sort of hacked off um, campaigners before on an episode of this podcast, and it, they sort of regularly said it has, nothing's really changed. And, and I, 
you know, you mentioned broadcast media. I, I feel like it, even TV, I know TV's still popular, but it's not as popular. A lot of younger people are choosing to watch streaming services instead or watching things online. Um, and so I wonder, is, is that one way that this will change or one way of kind of tackling, um, you know, uh, what regulation in media or, or, or a lack of balance or bias or all the things we discussed is one of the ways it might naturally be tackled is that people kind of seek their own sources online or do we need to be more proactive in doing what I know you do on your course where teach critical thinking and, and teaching people how to view things correctly, I suppose, or view things with a, not correctly, um, you know, <laughs> looking for the information, looking for the facts within them and, and uh, examining them with a critical eye. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess critically interrogating, um, power really i can't really dislocate the structure of the media from the structures of power but um to go back to levison briefly yeah i think you're right uh, levison didn't really change very much but i should also make clear i don't think that's that's not the fault of the inquiry itself which was insightful and quite enlightening and the actual report itself was rigorous and it gave us plenty to work with but what happened was it was immediately then transformed and watered down by some very powerful political and media actors and then part two of Leveson, of course, was um, of the inquiry was was um, which was supposed to examine the relationship between the police and the press. Uh, that was cancelled by Matt Hancock. Well, whatever happened to him? I <laughs> so you know, when, he, when he was culture secretary, he closed it down. He said, "No, it's it's, it's all fine." And he actually said, "I'm going to quote him." Um, he said, "There's been significant changes to press regula- self-regulation." Um, and then he also identified that the threat to the press now comes from digital tech giants such as Facebook and Google. So while I think he was categorically wrong on the first issue, there's not been a significant change to press self-regulation. Ipso, I think it's just a rebadged PCC, Press Complaints Commission. But he's not necessarily wrong about the second part, right? But I'll come, I can come back to that if you want. But anyway, despite Leveson, uh, the power of media conglomerates, as far as I can see, at least, I think it's probably been strengthened, which is quite a worry. Um, you know, and remember why we had the Leveson Inquiry. I'm sure people know, but I'm going to rehearse it anyway because it's important that we remember it. Every time I mention this to students, which, you know, when I first started talking about this, it was live, it was happening at the time. If I wasn't teaching or writing a lecture or writing a research paper or doing something, I would be watching the Leveson Inquiry. So I watched it. It seemed rarely in the moment, right? but it was 10 years ago. So now when I mention it to students, some of them don't know what it was. I mean, most of them do because they're studying media or journalism. But I then have to, so I remind them why we had the Leveson inquiry, right? We had the Leveson inquiry because, you know, it was it was discovered um, that UK newspapers were routinely hacking into phone messages of private individuals in order to generate stories. And some of those victims were, you know, famously Millie Dowler, the murdered schoolgirl, but relatives of those killed in the 7-7 attacks and the relatives of serving soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that's why we had the Leveson Inquiry, and we do need to remember that, right? That the power that they have remains, I think, pretty much undiminished. It kind of relates to one of your earlier questions, I guess, about, about actually doing journalism. Um, so I, actually, I'm, I need to make a very clear caveat here as well, right? This is not at all, I need to make it clear, I'm not defending the actions of the journalists who undertook those, those uh, kind of egregious acts, right, of hacking into mobile phones, right? It's definitely not defending that. But why I think one of the reasons that came about, why they kind of did that, or one of the reasons, is because they discovered a little treasure trove of information that was available at the touch of some buttons, right? It was very quick, it was very easy, and it's a very cheap way to find stories. It also fed into a kind of growing market for celebrity stories and celebrity gossip and all that sort of stuff. 
Um, you know, we have to remember that the UK news media market is highly competitive, right? So I remember we've already mentioned them. I'm going to mention them again now. The Guardian journalist Nick Davies, you know, the guy who broke the story. We only really know about phone hacking because of Nick Davies and also his his um, his colleague Amelia Hill. Um, that's why we know about it because he continued to he he pursued this story, right? But he said the UK is quite small once, right? Prior to the electronic revolution, the mass newspaper market. You can reach 60 million people, and this is his quote, with an overnight train from London to Glasgow. Therefore, what you can do is you can distribute your news content to a mass market very quickly and very efficiently. So it makes it highly competitive, right? So once they discover a relatively speaking, at least, winning formula, celeb gossip and scandal, and you can do this cheaply and there's a big market for it, that sort of journalism, which is relatively cheap, is prioritised over and above you know, the more detailed, lengthy, difficult journalism. You know, and the, the difficult journalism actually that Nick Davis did. Um, he pursued that story for months, and only really because Alan Rusbridger allowed him to do that. And the Guardian at the time, I think, was losing a million pounds a week. Um, but of course, it's owned by a, a trust fund, so it, it had some spare capacity. But you know, there aren't many news media organisations that would have said to Nick Davis for two or three years, "Yeah, just keep doing that. You're, you're onto something. Just keep doing that story." You know, not, not many people would be able to do that. Um, which you know, anyway, so I think, yeah, I mean, I can't remember where I was. What did, well, I can't even remember what your question or what I was asking. Oh, about the um, finding your own resources, yeah. Well, that's what it, it, you know, it makes me wonder then that, that where where do you kind of see the, the, the natural path of all this going? Because if if media isn't going to change, but at the same time, if if uh, print media is is sort of disappearing, um, if TV uh you know or broadcast is not getting the ratings that it used to say 10 20 years ago and people are going to the internet is you know do are, are we in need of of critical thinking just being more widespread or or is um or is this going to kind of naturally change as people seek out their own news sources anyway i mean i'm guessing they aren't exclusive yeah. from each other those things yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think that, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that um, print media is disappearing. I mean, print media, the printed paper might be, you know, dissipating and it's, it's, it's certainly not as fewer and fewer copies are sold. Right. But legacy media is referred to sometimes as legacy media, I think still has a lot of power, still has quite a lot of reach. Um, and still, importantly, I still I think it still functions as an agenda setter. Um, it dominates political, social, cultural discourse. Um, that said, there are you know there are issues I guess in there are issues around the collapse of trust, right? But not just the collapse of trust in media institutions, but in some of the tenets of liberal democracy, um, which I don't have any solutions to. I'm afraid. But the Goldsmith academic uh, Will Davis writes really well about this, and he says that so for approximately let's say 300 years, we sort of outsourced for very good reason expertise to experts, right? So we had. Um, statisticians, uh, official government data, um, social institutions that would, that would produce information, right, that we could trust because it was, you know, it was trusted. It was this tenet of liberal democracy. Um, and then we also trusted largely that that information could be communicated by professional communicators or journalists, right, and news media. That's not to say it was a perfect system. It was definitely not a perfect system and is not a perfect system, right? It was very male. It was very white. It wasn't representative of, you know, subaltern identities or progressive social forces. It wasn't. It was hardly perfect. But what's, what seems to me to have happened now is that the answer to that imperfection 
is, and it's no answer at all, right? But the answer we've come up with, the answer we've arrived at to the wisdom imperfection is trust nothing and trust no one, which is just absurd. So I don't really have an answer to, you know, how we regain that kind of trust in liberal institutions. I'm not sure anyone does, but throwing out everything and into a kind of information free-for-all, I'm also pretty certain isn't the solution. I guess there is a worry about, you know, people finding their own finding their own news sources. Um, so in some ways that's there's there's the potential that to be quite 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 interesting. We don't have to trust necessarily um, everything we read. You know, this is something I talk to students about, you know, and one of the things I always want students to, the one thing I want undergraduate students to when they arrive, by the time they leave, I want them to be critical thinking. That's it. And to and to, you know, question things and, and not not take things for granted. But um, yeah. I don't really have an answer to how we rebuild trust, but I think we need to, and I don't have an answer how we do that. And I don't think it's just about media. I think it's about lots of other things, which is a whole bigger discussion, which I'm probably not qualified to talk about. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I, I really, um, sort of my personal view is I really feel like critical thinking should be taught. I read something the other day about Finnish schools, I think, where they're taught it from the age of seven, because, of course, they are. Finland's brilliant at all these things. And, um, you know, about how from the age out, of seven... It comes out top, doesn't it? And every, every, every kind of, single uh, time. Yeah, every time. And, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've been there. I've done gigs over there a few times, and every time it's like, oh, you're all just such sensible people. Um, <laughs> live live for six months in the dark, but very sensible despite... Um, I'm very happy, mate. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the six months of light, I think, charges them up. It's a sort of uh, power-saving thing. Um, but it's, you know, I, I'm very aware of critical thinking, and I have a big uh, worry where I've had people sort of say to me, even this podcast, like, oh, I get my news from your podcast. Like, don't, I'm not a journalist, and I haven't, inve- you know, I investigate things that I know I can make jokes about, and then I can talk to people who do know things like yourself. But this isn't a news, so, you know, and I sort of get a bit worried about it. Um, and There was an interesting, sorry, I've interrupted you. There was an, there was an interesting... Um, I think it was a piece of research, but I know that some undergraduate students from the United States that came to my course, we always have um, students from America that come over to do one semester. And two students, two years running, um, talked about uh, the um, the Daily Show as their source of news, um, which I just thought I thought was really interesting because, of course, it's, it's not a source of news, or it shouldn't be. But there, was, there, there were moments where... Um, I mean, they, they were sort of functioning as de facto journalists to some extent, or at least shining a light on some of the failures of journalism. But they don't claim to be journalistic, but I think there is something there. But yeah, I had two students, two years running, they've said that that's where they get their news. And I, I was I was sort of simultaneously horrified, but also delighted by that. I, I said, well, it's not actually, it's a problem. It's not actually, it's not an official news source, but yeah, they do some good stuff. Yeah, well, and also I think that, that being under the kind of caveat of comedy rather than journalism allows you to be more critical in a way uh that some other news isn't in that you know i can i can choose to go into things more deeply because i know that i can talk about but this is a personal thing but i know it was very much what i, what I admired john stewart for and now obviously uh, trevor now and always uh, and all the writers of that but they can go right this is the issue today and we're going to tear it apart and we're going to come at it from you know the whole point of comedy is to look at things from a different angle so it gives you that almost that excuse i think um but i'm still aware we're not it's not without, without the comedy bit that's what current affairs should be doing i mean if you strip out the comedy that's what current affairs broadcasting ought to do um, because you, you know, one of the problems with news, and I talked about it earlier, is about news values and the immediacy and the unambiguity and the clarity, and just a quick story. So news, news typically strips out content. That's its, that's its almost its job. 
it's certainly the thing that I complain about to students. Any students ever been taught by me will say, yes, Chris always says, news purely strips out context. But current affairs is supposed to add that back in, right? You've got, let's say you're on news night, you've got, you know, 45 minutes. You could do the whole program on one issue if you want. Panorama, which is the thing I wrote my PhD on, um, has some, and now has half an hour, but when I was, the, the programs I was analyzing for, were from many years ago, from the early 2000s, they were 50 minutes long. And Panorama still has six programs a year that are one hour long. And current affairs ought to do that. But um, I mean, in many ways, what current affairs tends to do is uh, it goes back to this idea of character and drama. So they, they do go into more detail, but what they give you is they give you depth, but they don't give you breadth. So they might give you depth of character or, you know, a bit more of a long tail story, but they don't do breadth, by which I mean they don't they don't give you context, so they don't join the dots. So, you know, there might be a story on the housing crisis or Panorama did, a, did a, um, an episode uh, where it was all about, you know, chasing down people that are stealing, you know, stealing benefits, basically. They were claiming housing benefit where they weren't, where they weren't supposed to. Um, but what it doesn't do, what that doesn't do, and I sort of understand it. Again, I'm quite sympathetic to journalists, but I kind of wish there was a program that would do this. So they they, they take an easy target, right? That's quite, that's quite an easy target. It's also quite easy to do that research because government agencies will give you as much data as you want on how many people are stealing benefits. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't link that the wider story to the housing crisis or to the, you know, the impossibility of sustaining yourself in, the, you know, the last days of neoliberal capitalism or whatever you want to call it. Um, no, no current affairs program does that either. And I think they ought to. And it's a big, it's a real bugbear of mine. That, in fact, if you want to take a takeaway that a student would constantly say about me is, I complain about current affairs because it ought to do more. It ought to do context. And in fact, it doesn't. And it's it's so important. It's so, I mean, it, it's one of the things that drives me mad. If, for example, the current government seeming to forget that the last 10 years were also the same party <laughs> and uh, we're going to fix all these things and there's never any context going, but you you broke them. You broke them just a couple of years ago. Um, and there's a, a complete lack of reminding people that that's the case. Um, uh, a remarkable capacity to, for, to forget or to encourage us to forget. Yeah, there's a lovely, a lovely gag by Frankie Boyle, who um, I'm going to absolutely steal his gag and butcher it now, but a gag about how, uh, you know, his, um, his, his nan during the banking crisis, you know, he, he always sort of couldn't understand how people would blame the banking crisis on immigrants and everything like that. And and he was like, it was the banks. It was called the banking crisis. It was on the news. We all knew it was the banks. It was the banks that crashed, you know? And then he said, but then he'd be watching like Columbo with his nan and they'd show who killed someone. And then she'd go, Oh, I wonder who did it. Nan, they just showed it. It was just that they just showed who did it. You know, and he, he sort of equated the two. And I always think that was fantastic. It's absolutely that ability to go. Oh, I can't remember. I just didn't, didn't absorb that. I'll, I'll just go with whatever I'm being told now, uh, which is horrific. Yes, it's, it's like it's like the joke that Alexis Sale told, and is now very famous for one well, he's incredibly famous and a very brilliant writer. But the thing that's trotted out quite a lot, as he said, you know, the financial crisis, it's, it's absurd. But you know, the government managed to persuade everyone that the, the financial crisis was caused by too many uh, libraries open in Wolverhampton. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a fantastic gag. It's a fantastic gag. Um, one of the one of the things I wanted to. Uh, to finally ask you about really is that um you know we mentioned you mentioned something that matt hancock actually got right uh earlier which is incredible um but he um talked about sort of social media giants facebook's just banned all, all australian news from its feeds and i i just wonder if it, from um your position you know do, do you think that's a good thing because there's a little bit of me uh, that, that wonders if actually 
should social media be a news-free place? Obviously, the power it has to just ban news is, is quite concerning, but actually, Facebook returning to cat memes, um, that can't be a, you know, a bad thing in some ways, can it? No, I mean, Facebook's quite interesting and, of course, obviously massively problematic in loads of ways because arguably it's the world's largest media company, but it doesn't produce any media, right? So, so we produce all of Facebook's content. And what's more, we do it for free. We do it free of charge. We're all like, you know, unpaid labour. We're an unpaid labour force that produces all Facebook's content, which they then monetize and commodify. It's astonishing, really. It's astonishingly, it's astonishingly powerful. But it's one of the reasons for that is I think it's because it's a platform. It's not a publisher, which means it's not subject to the same regulatory oversight as a publisher, right? So if you're a publisher, you've got certain obligations. Um, you've got these certain obligations. If you, I mean, you'll get sued if you libel someone, for instance. If you lie or engage in activity that's harmful uh, and you're a publisher, you're liable. Now, of course, you know, obviously media routinely gets away with all sorts of things anyway but in theory at least and, and sometimes of course in practice um there are mechanisms in place um that means you can you know that the individuals can access in order to get some justice i think as far as i can tell facebook has not kind of that, right facebook's just the host it's the conduit it's the platform so it can just stand back and just say it's not our problem guys right? Not our problem. We're just the host. We're just the platform. We're not the publisher. Not only that, but if you're on Facebook and you click on a link to, a, let's say, a Guardian article, right? So I might have a friend that puts up a link to a Guardian article. I might do this myself. If you click on that link, Facebook gets 80% of the advertising. 80%. Now, I think obviously, like, legislation is changing all the time, and there's a lot of lobbying, and now Facebook are actually doing something where they're, you know, they're giving some of their revenues to news organisations. But it's taken about 10 years, and even then they're still in a very powerful position, and they're not really giving any of that up. They're just giving up some uh, revenue. They're not actually giving up any power, right? But 80% of that revenue, so that they get the revenue, but they don't actually pay for the sometimes hours of time it takes to produce that content, right? So good journalism, let's talk about good journalism. That takes time, it takes effort, it takes tenacity, it takes resources, it takes enormous skill, right, to do brilliant journalism. But Facebook don't do any of that, right? They just milk the revenues from the work of others, which I think is amazing. And I'm saying this as someone that uses Facebook. I mean, almost everybody does. This is how much power they have. But they, they're just sort of milking the revenue. They've commodified us all. The Twitter's another interesting example because I, I worry, um, as should be obvious, that this, this, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is kind of information free for all. Um, you know, and we sort of like, well, trust no one then. Okay, I'm going to trust my own views, which of course is, is, um, pretty terrible. Um, so, you know, no one, we have no authority, no one has any authority, no one has any kind of, you know, legitimate voice. Now, in some ways, it's, you know, there's, there's some positive things about things like Twitter because the barriers to entry have come down. Right? So everyone, anyone, in theory, everyone can be like a broadcaster, can be a journalist, you can, you can put your views out. So there's, there's a potential um, sort of positive with that, but we're, but we're, even though the barriers to entry are lowered and we're, we all have that capacity, we all have that power, and we can broadcast our views, um, we don't have equal reach, right? I don't have the reach that a journalist has or a very powerful person has. And equally, like having a voice doesn't always equate to being heard, right? So I might, all of us might have this voice, it's like this massive free-for-all. Having a voice doesn't mean you'll be listened to. 
Um, so I worry about that as well. I worry about this. You know, I worry about the kind of collapsing model that we currently have. And Facebook, I think, is the big problem. Sorry, I, I segued there into Twitter. From <laughs> <laughs> no, I think up. Facebook is the biggest problem. Is is a very good line to end, end it on. Um, Thank you so much for, for your time, Chris. Um, just the last question, which is that I ask everyone, uh, every interview I have on this show, just with the hope of furthering good information that we were speaking about earlier, good, proper, actual information uh, with context. Um, is that who, apart from yourself, uh, where should listeners go to for kind of, well, for info on on media studies, info on the, on the state of, of current media? You know, what are the news resources that you use and that you go to? Um, okay, but if you'll permit me, I'm going to use this. Obviously, you can cut this out if you want. But I'm going to use this space, this time, even if it takes three minutes, four minutes, to loudly speak up for the value of media studies, right? Because there's an academic discipline, other academic disciplines as well, like sociology. Because when I, I left school at 16, right? Sorry to do an autobiographical thing, and you can cut this out. But I left school at 16 with no qualifications. I became a plumber, right? I trained to be a plumber. And it's a really valuable thing to do, right, to be a plumber. But I was young and foolish, and I gave it up and I hated it, right? Maybe I should have stuck at it, but I didn't. I quit, right? So I spent a few years hanging about, not really doing much, and I was driving a van, um, and all of it was fine. But I then went to university as a mature student, and I loved it. And I found it utterly inspiring and life-changing. It's actually life-transformative, right? It's totally transformative. Now, the reason I mention this is because um, I feel I've got a kind of – I've got some sort of investment in um, media studies, but also in – you know, in traditional trades, because they're often, you know, in the media discourse about the value or not, often not of the of media studies, um, it's it's pitched against, you know, being an electrician or a plumber or things. Like that. I, mean, I think both things are massively valuable. They're just they're just different, right? So they have immense value to society, right? Both of them. So plumbing, if you've got a problem with your your you know your boiler or your drain, a plumber can come along, fix it. They have a skill, right? Intellectual skill, but also a physical skill, and they charge accordingly, right? Media studies, there's, it's not immediate, right? But there is a tangible benefit to everyone being media literate. So I think, you know, the academic study of media um, is vital. And it dates back more than 80 years for a start. You know, there's a wealth of scholarship on the kind of sociological, the psychological, the cultural, the discursive, the economic dimensions of the media. Newspapers have been around for 250 years. Cinema for about 100. Television for 60. I mean, media literally, and I think I use the term correctly, mediates culture and society. You know, news media places boundaries and limitations on what constitutes acceptable, and I'll do the funny quotes, uh, acceptable ideological and political discourse. Um, you know, I've already paraphrased McCombs and Shaw, can't tell us what to think, but tells us what to think about. Um so in other words, it kind of shapes and cultivates the discourse, right? So the idea that we should not recognise and not study that stuff, it to me seems absurd. Now, of course, you might say that because it's my job, right? But I think it's the other way around. I, it's, it's my job because I believe, not, not the other way around, right? It's, I mean, I think it's absurd to not interrogate those things, right? Because I don't think it's possible to disconnect the study of media from the study of power. I think I've already said that. But I want to so for students at a university like mine, right, and this is what I would say to anyone interested in it, you know, go just study it. You can you can read different things, and I'll make some recommendations in a moment. But students at a university like mine, so I work at Roehampton, and we get lots and lots of students who are first generation to go to university. We have a lot of uh, poor students, uh, a lot of um, ethnic minority students. Probably most of them are the first in their families to go to university. 
Now, those kind of students, I think they're attracted to study media and study journalism and study uh, culture because they want to intellectually examine their place within systems of representation and relations of power. Now, they might not think that as they arrive, but I think most of them think that by the time they leave, right? And some of them do think that at the time they arrive, right? Because this, the, you know, the systems of representation haven't reflected their own experiences, right? Sometimes they've overtly disavowed their own experiences. So it's unsurprising, really, that media studies gets a hard time because, you know, powerful media political actors embedded in structures of power produced and sustained by an equally powerful media don't see the value in studying the mediation of power, of course, because, you know, as if they would want any examination of their hegemony. Now, I might be overselling and overplaying how powerful media studies can be, and I'm sure I am, right? But I think there's something to it, okay? So other than that shout-out to media studies, the value of, which I apologise, I would say support alternative media. So whether that's, you know, so Navarra Media do really good stuff. They're, you know, clearly uh, on the left of politics, um, which that's not necessarily why you should follow them, but they do interesting stuff. Double Down News. Um, uh, the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, Tribune. Again, most of these have a have a, an ideological position, but I would say arguably the most important, um, at least in, in my opinion, one of the most important news outlets in the UK is Open Democracy. I would definitely recommend reading and if you can supporting via a you know 10 pound a month subscription or something to something like um open democracy but i would also say to, to people to look at specialist publications some of the best journalism i think is happening in specialist publications so you get like the nursing times and the health journal for instance do wonderful insightful groundbreaking stories on health unsurprising similarly inside housing inside housing is a brilliant magazine and we have a housing crisis inside housing does some brilliant journalism even something like the Architects Journal, which is very niche, right? So I don't ex necessarily expect people to, you know, pick that publication up routinely. Although, of course, if you wanted to, it'd be really good. And if you subscribe, it'd be even better. But the reason I mentioned the Architects Journal is because um, we only know about the disaster of Boris Johnson's £46 million that he blew on the Garden Bridge. We only know that because of the tireless, relentless journalism from a couple of journalists at uh, the... Um, the Architects Journal. That's really, really good. That was some, they do some really, really brilliant journalism, right? I think that story would have faded into the unknown had it not been for that kind of tireless work. £46 million pounds that he blew on a garden bridge that never happened. We know that because the Architects Journal covered it. Now other places have covered it, right? They took that work and, and ran with it. Um, and also I can't say, as I did earlier, the news, I, I can't really finish a podcast by, by saying that you can't you ought not to support the BBC, right? With all its problems, and it does have many problems. And for more on that, I would read someone like Tom Mills, who's a brilliant scholar uh, of um, the BBC in particular. He's a sociologist. I would read the work of Tom Mills. But I think news is to, so this is the, the takeaway point, I guess, is news is too important to be left to the market, I think. And I think some public funding needs to be available for journalism. Um, so I would support the BBC. But an important caveat, the idea and the ideal of the BBC, right, that some public funding goes towards the provision of news content. But as it's currently imagined, again, see Tom Mills, is not particularly good or democratic. So I would urge everyone also to seek out something like the Media Reform Coalition, who do really good work. Hacked Off, I think you've already mentioned. Uh, follow and read the work of 
someone like Leo Watkins on Twitter. He does some really good uh, media activism and media reform. And again, I've already mentioned it, but Dan Hines. Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned, but I don't think I have, the Media Reform Coalition. Maybe I did just mention that. The Media Reform Coalition. Um, so when did this come out? Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, they've got their, their annual event, which is normally just on a Saturday. Normally a Saturday, they have their what's called the Media Democracy Festival. It's every March, and it's always at Birkbeck. Now, last year, it was cancelled at the last minute because of COVID. This year, it's all online. And it's a week-long festival. It's normally just one day, but they've got a week-long festival. So, and it's all free. You don't have to pay for anything. Look up the Media Reform Coalition and look up Media Democracy Festival. Um, and there's some really, really brilliant work going on there. Not just from media academics, from journalists and you know, from activists. There's a whole sort of panoply of different people. Um, so I would look that up. It, yeah, it runs for a week. And finally, yeah, hacked off, hacked off. Media Reform Coalition, all those kind of people. And uh, if you are so inclined, come and study media. And if you're really so inclined, come to Roehampton. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of the interview. Uh, but Chris got in touch with me uh, the day after we finished recording and asked if he could add this to his answer to my question about the issue of political bias versus lazy journalism. So here you go. So despite the fact that I spoke for a long time, your lovely host of this wonderful podcast agreed to give me one final minute because I wanted to clarify or at least summarise an issue. It relates to what I referred to as the sociological incuriosity of political journalism and why that's a problem. This is because, in my opinion, a political project of social transformation, one that seeks to challenge established hegemonic interests, has an inherent social and sociological dimension. But political media doesn't do context or sociology. This perhaps explains when political journalists did deign to cover the wider left movements, they did so like the worst kind of 18th century anthropologists. They represented the movements as a kind of unruly tribe. But an important point to remember is that it's not about individual journalists. It's about the structures, the practices, the conditions and the templates. These structures and practices, which I've already referenced, include but aren't limited to news values, which tend to be about immediacy and drama and the focus on the individuals, and that strips out context. Source relations, political journalists have a necessary, apparent, you know, apparently necessary relationship with their primary definers um, and then storytelling templates and those templates are beautifully illustrated by the Walsfeld quote. These three elements combined means our political media is, in my opinion, structurally incapable of adequately explaining the wider and deeper context and those social movement politics. To explain any political project of social and economic transformation, we need a political media that represents politics as sociology when what we actually have is a political media that does politics as Westminster soap opera. Thanks tons to Chris for that fascinating chat. Um, you can find Chris on Twitter at uh, Chris, but with an, uh, a, a one instead of an I. Uh, Roberts, but with a zero instead of an O. So it's Chris Roberts, but with a one and a zero. You work it out. And you can also find him teaching at Roehampton University in the Department of Media, Culture and Language. You can read some of Chris's research and his thesis at pure.roehampton.ac.uk website as well. Also, we're saying that Chris mentioned Alexi Sales' gag about the financial crash. And recently, Alexi Sales has been doing a podcast too, and it is properly brilliant. I mean, I've been a big fan of his for many, many years, and it is a real delight hearing him go off on unprepared political rants and comedy ideas. Um, it's called, quite obviously, the Alexi Sales podcast, and it is very worth subscribing to, and I'll pop a link to that in the pod blurb. 
And of course, uh, should you have anyone or anything or anywhere that you'd like me to interview? No, wait, sorry, I can't interview a place as I don't like their position on things. Ah. Sorry, I mean, any recommendation can, of course, be sent to at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can make your recommendation only accessible to those who have special vaccine passports and I haven't had mine yet and probably won't be able to read it till July or whatever so you'll just have loads of very confused people thinking it's not as good as a sticker from their doctor to say that actually they've been very brave. So as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Um, if you are one of the four people who listen to this on a 50s-style wireless radio, I don't actually know if there are four people doing that, but I hope there are, and that they spend every second of this podcast thinking it's a weird comedy sci-fi about a dystopian future that they don't understand before eating a scoop of brill cream and shouting swears at the bread delivery boy. Yeah, I've got no idea how things were in history. Anyway, whatever time era you're from, if you do like the show, why not bloody well tell someone about it by either shouting it at them loudly from a window or through a loud hailer in the park or by shaving it onto a nearby cow that they're likely to pass. Don't do that. Please don't shave cows. Alternatively, you could just say nice things on the social medias, give the podcast a stonking five-star review on one of the many podcast platforms that allow such things, and hey, maybe even donate to the Kofi, Patreon or ACAR supporter pages. Or just wire me hard cash and put it in unmarked notes in a bin bag on my street, but not on Friday or the bin when will get it first and I'll be well gutted. Thanks a bunch of perfectly ripe bananas to Acast, my brother last skeptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when, as the Brazilian variant runs rampage around the UK, Matt Hancock insists that it's under control as they haven't taken any details of anyone who's tested positive for it, so therefore it doesn't really exist. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Eat Trout to Help Out. The fishing industry is floundering because of our fishy deal, so be a cod guy and get sucked into the bait from this red herring by eating mackerel and haddock for every single meal, every day for Britain. Top your shreddies with a cold haddock for breakfast, pop a raw mackerel in your sarnie for lunch, and think of England as you snack on an eel before bed. You go eat all the fish because we cocked up and don't want to. This has been a message from the British government, trusting the country to go along with all our cod swallop, hook, line and sinker. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm.